Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interest, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Michael Hingson. He has been blind since birth, and he is an author and lecturer. On September 11th, 2001, he escaped the World Trade Center with his guide dog. And of course, he's had successful careers and lots of advocacy work. So he's got lots to share with us today. I'm grateful that he is here. So Mike, why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Well, I think you uh, you just did it. So this has been a great podcast. No, I understand. <laughs> um, well, as you said, I was born technically not blind, but Actually, in fact, it ended up being that way. I was born two months premature and given too much oxygen, which caused the retina not to form properly. It's a condition we know today as retinopathio prematurity. It used to be called retrolentral fibroplasia, and I still haven't gotten a good explanation as to why they changed the name. It's just as confusing. But my parents were told to send me off to a home because no blind child could ever grow up to do anything. And my parents said to the doctors who said that you're absolutely wrong, when it was discovered that I was blind, he can grow up to do whatever he wants and we're going to give him that opportunity. And the doctor said, but he's just going to take all the love that you have to give and it's not going to be good for his older brother. And my parents said, that's ridiculous. Anyway, it reflected the attitudes of the time. And unfortunately, they're still all too often the attitudes of today. The problem that we face in this country about blindness is most people haven't tried it. They don't know anything about it. And they make assumptions because they can see. Um, people say to me all the time, well, but you know, you can, you can read print, but you got to use a device like an um, app on an iPhone and other things like that. And I don't have to do that. And my response is, balderdash. You use as much technology to read as I do. The difference is what you use is a device that provides artificial light. But don't tell me that you don't use technology. You have a disability as well, and that is that you're light dependent. That's because of the attitude that my parents started me out with, essentially. But the reality is everyone in this world has a disability. Most of you are light dependent, and as soon as the power goes out or whatever, you run for a flashlight, a smartphone, a candle, or something, because you need that light. I don't. Uh, so I tend to believe that in my own way I have a good level of independence because I don't need that light. On the other hand, we live in a wonderful era today where there are a lot of technological devices. So I can use an iPhone to read printed material or other kinds of technologies to read printed material. I also use Braille, which every blind person should learn. Braille is the means by which we read and write, like print are the, is the means that you use to read and write. If you're going to tell, and too many teachers tell blind kids, you don't need to learn Braille, you can just listen on your computer and so on, then why do we teach sighted kids to read print? Let's just let them watch cartoons on TV. The fact is, Braille is the means by which I learn to write, read, spell, and do all the other things that other people do. And no other technology gives me that same level of sophistication at doing that. How I get read, how I get Braille, whether it be one type of technology or another isn't the point, but Braille is still the important thing. Well, my parents, as I said, brought me up with that kind of an attitude, and I grew up believing that I could do whatever I chose to do. So I 
went to public school. I went to the University of California at Irvine. I got a bachelor's degree in physics and a master's degree in physics and a secondary teaching credential. And then I went into the workforce, actually first job working for an organization called the National Federation of the Blind, the largest consumer organization of blind people in the United States. And what I was hired to do was to conduct the day-to-day parts of a project that the Federation had begun. In, I think, 1974, a guy named Ray Kurzweil, who is a futurist and an inventor, and many, many people know him as the inventor of the singularity, the time when computers and people will kind of meld together. But anyway, Ray came to the Federation and said, I have a machine that will read print out loud, and we don't even care what type styles or print styles are on the page. That was unusual because it had never been done before. And Ray convinced the leadership of the National Federation of the Blind. I was in school at the time. Ray convinced the leadership to come and look at his machine. And what do you know? It really read all the stuff they threw at it. Some things better than others, but it still did it. So the Federation and Ray started a project to put reading machines prototypes specifically around the country so that blind people could use the machines and provide feedback as to what needed to be done to improve them. It's pretty unique to put five $50,000 prototype machines around the country, but that's what happened. And I was hired to literally go from machine to machine as they were um, sent out and, and installed. And I would teach people to use them and do other things that went along with the project. And by June of 1978, the project ended. And within a few months, I was hired by Ray Kurzweil to do the same thing internally. But Ray did what a lot of CEOs of engineering type companies do, which is he hired too many non-revenue producers. And so he wasn't bringing in enough money to support everybody. And so when I think May of 1979, I was called into the office of the vice president of marketing and I was told I was being laid off because I wasn't a revenue producer. I was doing human factor studies and other things that were great. And they said, your job is good, but we really need revenue producers. So we have to lay you off. And then there was a pause. Unless you want to go into sales, but we don't want you to sell the reading machine for the blind. We have a new commercial version that we want you to sell. And I didn't think of it so much until later, but the confidence that they placed in me to feel that I could sell this $125,000 technology having never sold before, they enrolled me in a Dale Carnegie sales course and so on. And I learned how to sell and I learned what real selling is all about and began to sell for Kurzweil, always achieving goal and doing other things like that. And eventually, now I was living in Boston and um, I grew up, well, let me go back. I was born in Chicago, but moved to California when I was five. But then with the Kurzweil thing, I ended up in Boston. But in 1981, Kurzweil asked me to move back to California because Xerox had expressed an interest in buying the company. And so Kurzweil wanted somebody scientifically somewhat inclined who was also in sales to help integrate Kurzweil into Xerox. So I moved back to California. And along the way, once moving back, I met a woman named Karen Ashurst, who was a lady in a wheelchair. I met her in January of 1982, and we hit it off, and we got married on November 27th, 1982. Um, And we were married almost 40 years until Karen passed this last November 12th. So as I love to tell people, the spirit moves faster than the body, and we, we also still have over 40 years of 
marriage memories. And so we moved forward. But anyway, I moved to California, married Karen, and worked for Kurzweil until the Xerox takeover had occurred. And then they dismissed all of us who were in sales, and I started to have to go look for a job. And ran into, going back to the whole issue of blindness, exactly what I mentioned before. People don't know about blindness. I had an interview scheduled with someone, and the night before the interview, the headhunter who had scheduled it and who had gotten an airplane ticket for me to fly to Northern California called and said, I noticed that you do a lot of stuff with blind people. Is there somebody in your family who's blind? And I said, yeah, I'm blind. You're blind? I've got to call them. They're not going to want to talk to you. I said, you liked my resume. You had me scheduled for an interview. Of course I can do the job. What is the problem? But you're blind. What does that have to do with it? The unemployment rate today among employable blind people is between 65 and 70%. It is not that we can't work. It's that people think we can't. Like I said, the biggest problem with blindness is that people haven't tried it. Well, I had that interview canceled by the headhunter, and uh, I eventually got a job by starting my own company, selling computer-aided design systems to architects. Talk about graphics and something where I couldn't run the machine, but I knew how to work the machine by the time it was all said and done so I could help other people recognize the value of it. And then later, I sold the company and went to work for other companies and eventually ended up at the World Trade Center working for Quantum Corporation. And we opened our office on August 1st, 2000. Quantum made the, company, the products that people would use to back up computer data over their networks. We did the hardware, and we worked with a number of software packages. And so I was the Mid-Atlantic Region Sales Manager. I hired a sales force, worked with service people in the company and so on. And had several of them in the office. We had a, a definitely going and growing concern until September 11th when we were going to be doing some sales seminars to teach others how to sell our products. And uh, there were some early arrivals in our offices eating breakfast in our conference room. And I and a colleague from our corporate office who had come in for the seminars, David Frank, were in my office preparing final materials for the conference when suddenly we felt the building lurch and then start to tip. Literally, it tipped in one direction. Imagine a spring where you fasten it to the bottom of a table and then you push the top of the spring. That's exactly what happened with the building. And the building tipped so far that David and I said goodbye to each other because we thought we were about to take a 78 floor plunge to the street. But um, before um, it did and, and before it went that far, David and I had said goodbye to each other, and then this building just stopped and it started moving back the other way. Now, I should explain that, again, for me as a blind person, it isn't that I can't do things. I may not do them exactly the same way you do, because you use eyesight and I don't. So for me, as the leader in the World Trade Center quantum office, I needed to know all I could know about the World Trade Center and anything that might be involved with what we do in order to be as productive as I could. And as I love to tell every salesperson, my job is to add value to what you do, not boss you around. And the smart people got that. But in any case, I learned how to walk around the World Trade Center. I knew where things were. I knew where all the kiosks were in the shopping mall on the first floor. I knew right where the Ben & Jerry's ice cream kiosk was outside our tower. Good place to go. And I learned where offices were, where companies were. 
I learned where the restaurants were so I could take people to lunch if we had people in for demos. I needed to know that stuff because I couldn't allow someone to lead me around, especially if we were then going to be negotiating multi-million dollar contracts. How's it going to look when I can't even walk around the building and I'm expected to negotiate a contract? So I had to know that stuff. And also, it was important for me to know what to do in the case of an emergency. And although I didn't realize it until later, what I did by learning all that I could about what to do in an emergency was I developed a mindset that said, you can function in an emergency and you can make decisions and you don't need to be afraid. And that happened on September 11th. One of the clues that I had that although there was an emergency and the building was on fire, was that my guide dog, Roselle, wasn't indicating fear. And I knew what she was like when she was afraid, but after the building stopped moving and I met her coming out from under my desk and told her to heal, um, she was sitting there wagging her tail and yawning while people were yelling, the building's on fire. And I said, slow down, we'll get out. No, we gotta get out of here. And somebody, uh, David, I think finally said, the building's on fire, you don't understand, you can't see it. And the problem wasn't what I couldn't see, it was what David didn't see. That is a dog just wagging her tail and yawning and going, who woke me up? Which told me that, yeah, there's an emergency. Yeah, we have to evacuate, but the crisis isn't so imminent that we have to panic and run arbitrarily out the door and so on. So I finally got David to focus and told him to get our guest to the elevator, or excuse me, to the stairs, because the elevators might be in danger of having fire come down the elevator shafts and burn people in the elevators. That did happen. So we, um, in, in reality, we went through the process. We evacuated, our, we got our guests to the stairs, David did, and then he came back and then we went to the stairs and started down. And we uh, eventually made it to the bottom. We had some challenges along the way. We had a couple of people start to panic. Even David once said, Mike, we're gonna die. We're not gonna make it out of here. And I used my best teacher's voice from getting that teaching credential and taking what I love to say are all the secret courses about how to yell to yell at students, you know. I said, stop it, David. If Roselle and I can go down these stairs, so can you. And, and he said that brought him out of his funk and he was able to focus and go down the stairs. But we got down, got outside, discovered Tower 2 was on fire, not knowing what had happened. And of course, I didn't know what happened, but nobody on my side of the building knew what happened. And people always say, well, you didn't know, you couldn't see it. The last time I checked, Superman and X-ray vision were fictitious. Nobody could see through 18 floors of concrete and steel from one side of the building to the other. No one knew where we were. So we got outside, discovered fire, but um, still didn't know what happened. And we eventually had to run away from Tower 2 as it collapsed. And after it did, and we saw that it was gone, David said, oh my God, Mike, there's no Tower 2. We walked away a little bit further and then Tower 1 collapsed. And it was only after that that I was able to reach my wife on the phone and tell her that we were out. And she said how two aircraft had been deliberately hijacked and crashed into the towers one into the Pentagon and a fourth was still missing over Pennsylvania. For me, um, I don't know what to say, I was flabbergasted, but we eventually made it home that night and started to make sense of it. On the 12th, I called Guide Dogs for the Blind where I've gotten all of my guide dogs from. And I did that in part because Karen reminded me some of the people from Guide Dogs had been to visit us in the World Trade Center, so they knew I was there. 
And Guide Dogs put out a little story about us, which just went viral, as they would say in the media. So we started getting lots of requests for interviews and people requesting me to come and speak and tell our story. And I decided that selling philosophy and allowing myself to be hired to speak, and I also was hired as a public spokesperson for Guide Dogs for the Blind, was a lot more rewarding than selling computer products. And so I went to work doing all of that. And then in 2008, the C a new CEO of Guide Dogs decided that no one was really interested in the story anymore, so they phased out my job. So I just started my own company to continue doing what I had been doing, and I do it today. But I've done some other things along the way, help bring some other products to market. And today I work with a company called Accessibe that makes products that help make the internet more accessible for people with a variety of different kinds of disabilities uses uh, accessibility uses artificial intelligence products as well as manual assistance to make sure that websites are fully accessible it's innovative it's fun and it was because of accessibility that i started the podcast unstoppable mindset that we now do we've done 103 episodes now and we do two a week which is a lot of fun so again doing philosophy if you will it's a lot of fun. Keeps me out of trouble and off the streets and gives me the opportunity to tell people about the World Trade Center and blindness and just teach people that we're all challenged in one way or another in the world, but we also also have gifts and we all ought to use our gifts and not have anybody demean us because our gifts are different than others. So that's kind of an overview and I'm sticking to my story. Yes. And it sounds a little bit, you know, kind of with your job experience full circle, um, you know, with the original position, um, working with the devices for blind people with the reading devices, and then now kind of, and then going to um, the Guide Dogs for America and now everything. Guide Dogs for the Blind. Yes. Which is different than Guide Dogs of Americans. Guide Dogs for the Blinds in San Rafael and Boring, Oregon, a town called Boring. And Guide Dogs of America is in Silmar, different schools, but same thing. Yes. Yeah. And now you're, you know, able to kind of, you know, run the show and and the podcast and everything. So it's, it's great to hear all of your experience. And one of the things you kind of touched on a couple of times is how a lot of people, you know, don't know what it's like to be blind because they haven't tried it. So would you be willing to share some of those things that, like, as you mentioned, your guide dog, Roselle, and just the things that help you get through and just function as a as a human being that some people might not realize are ways that you know you can do things you know you had that one job and if you get canceled but you clearly could have done the job so it's can you talk a little bit about you know accessibility accommodations that you use during the day-to-day again if if you look at it at a high level i do the same things that you do whether it's doing a podcast, whether it is walking somewhere, whether it is performing a sales job, a teaching job, uh, being a court reporter, or any other kind of job that people who can see do. The difference is I may use different technologies, and we are blessed to live in an environment and in a world where there is a lot more technology available to me to do jobs than was available before. And it is is growing. 
The problem is that society grows up fearing blindness. The Gallup polling organization, I assume they still do, but they used to do polls talking about people's fears. And one of the top five fears for many years was blindness. Not even disabilities, but blindness. Because we as a society, we as a race, the human race, emphasize eyesight so much. And I value eyesight. I know what it does. But the problem is we shouldn't undervalue people who may not have access to eyesight, but we're taught to fear it from every point of view, from the Bible to everywhere else. We talk about blind people who can't do things or we think they can't do things or blind people can't work or um, we have to provide all this additional kind of technology for a blind person to do a job. Well, let's put it in perspective. How many companies do you know of that have a nice, lovely coffee machine as a reasonable accommodation for employees to make sure they can go get their coffee or tea or hot chocolate and they constantly keep it supplied? How many companies pay their electric bills to keep the lights on for people to be able to see? We need to learn that part of the cost of doing business must be and should be providing accommodations to people who are different than some of us are, and maybe even different than most of us are. We don't always make accommodations for people who are left-handed. Women, of course, talk about different kinds of accommodations that they need and rightfully should have, but they're not alone in that. And we've got to get beyond this idea that disability is a lack of ability. It is not. And in reality, Hiring a blind person is probably one of the best things that a company can do because we know about that 65 to 70% unemployment rate among employable blind people. And the result of that is that if we get a job, we're going to do our darndest to keep it. It may mean that we'll have to have some accommodations. So, for example, on my computer, I use a software package that verbalizes whatever text goes to the monitor. It's the video intercept technology sees what is sent to the video card and it will verbalize that. It doesn't do graphics well, which is an issue, but it does text well. And I think over time, as artificial intelligence gets better, we will have more and more sophisticated technologies that will be able to describe pictures. On my website, I mentioned Accessibi. <clears throat> On my website, there is a picture of me hugging Roselle, my guide dog who was with me in the World Trade Center. There are actually two copies of that picture on the site. If you are a person who is wanting to make a website accessible, inclusive for blind people and for others, there are a lot of different kinds of codings that you can put on the site to make things work. For example, if you are a person with epilepsy and you go to a site with blinking elements, there needs to be a way for you to stop those elements from blinking or can throw you into a seizure. If you are a blind person that goes to a website and people haven't put what are called alt tags and alt texts on links to label the links, buttons to label the buttons, make sure that the links are recognized as true links, pictures being labeled and so on, I won't know any of the things that are on that page. When I put Accessibi on my site, I did not, my pictures were actually not labeled as I learned because we had just done an upgrade of the site and the guy who did it didn't do all that he said he was going to be able to do to make sure that it was accessible. 
But when I activated Accessibility, I heard when I went to this one place where there was a picture, something that said, man in black suit jacket hugging yellow Labrador retriever, which is an incredibly good job of describing the picture, not the way I want. And so what we did is we left that the way it was. So when, whenever anyone activates Accessibility, they'll hear that. But there's another copy of the picture, as I mentioned on the site, and we put in an alt text label on that that says, Mike Hinkson hugging Roselle. And Accessibility doesn't interfere with that. So to deal with websites, the reality is in the United States, even the Department of Justice now says that the internet is a place that requires reasonable accommodation and anyone who has a website should be making their website accessible. Accessibility is an extremely inexpensive way, even with just the artificial intelligence part, to get most of the job done. And the result is that I'm able to activate it when I go to a website that uses accessibility, and it makes websites incredibly more accessible. Anyone listening to this podcast can go to www.accessibe.com, and there is a place where you can run a free audit, where you can actually audit your website, plug in your website domain, and it will tell you how accessible your site is. There are other places that provide technologies to do that, but Accessibees is the most, well, I guess, understandable. It's just easy. It's written and made so that it's easier to understand. But the point is that we should be making websites accessible, and most com most places don't. 98% or so of all websites aren't accessible today. The government still isn't doing a great job of, of doing that, and it should. And it's been required to do that since 2008, but they're still not really doing what they should do. Um, so software and other things like that make it possible for me to um, interact with the internet. The iPhone in 2007 wasn't something that I could use. There was no technology to make it verbalize whatever was on the screen and so on. And in fact, I was a plaintiff of uh, in an attempt that was about to begin to sue Apple because they were not making their products accessible. iPhones, iPods, iTunes University, and so on. But before the suit was filed, Apple said, we're going to fix it. And you know what? They did. So anyone in the world who buys an iPhone today can activate the technology to make that phone totally verbalized. That is, you can make the iPhone accessible. Apple hasn't done one thing they need to do, which is they don't do anything to require app developers to include accessibility in their apps. They say, well, but there are guidelines. Guidelines in $5 might buy you a, a small cup of coffee at Starbucks, right? But that's not the problem. There's nothing that requires it. And I've had a number of apps where one day they work and the next day they updated it and they don't. But Apple did provide technology to make the iPhone accessible. Um, there are other kinds of technologies. You mentioned guide dogs. Well, there are guide dogs and there are white canes. The cane is the most basic tool that we use to walk around. Both the cane and the guide dog, in a sense, do the same thing. And let me be clear, a lot of reporters always say, well, Michael Hingson was led by his guide dog down the stairs. That is the grossest, horrible thing and the most insulting thing that anyone can say. Guide dogs don't lead, they guide. I have to know where I want to go and how to get there. 
It's my job to know that. How do I do that? Well, I do it the same way you do. I get information. You have the luxury of reading signs, unless you're in a place where there's an emergency and you can't. But for me, I work to know what's around me. Um, I use technologies like Google Maps and Apple Maps and other things to be able to know where um, to go and choose a route. There are other technologies. There's a company called Ira, A-I-R-A, Artificial Intelligent Remote Assistant, that literally uses an app. And the um, any anyone who uses the app can call an agent who is hired and trained to describe whatever needs to be described. And IRA agents will do anything from help you with banking kinds of things where the material is inaccessible to all sorts of other things, as well as traveling around. And um, again, it's a technology that's available. I know lawyers who use IRA on their job to be able to read documents and, and so on for discovery where the documents aren't accessible because people didn't make them accessible. So there are a lot of different kinds of technologies out there that essentially allow me to do the same things that you do, except I may not do them exactly the same way, but I get to the same result. And it doesn't matter whether I use Ira to walk around or read signs like you do, whether I use a guide dog or a cane and you don't you use your eyesight until it's too dark outside and then you've got to find a light source. It doesn't matter. We all do the same thing and we do it in our own way and no one should demean anyone because what we do is different than what you do. Definitely. And you can hear in the way you talk that, you know, your parents' attitude from, you know, basically day one of like, well, no, he's going to be able to do stuff. Um, he's going to be, you know, a good member of society has very much come through. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like early on in childhood and, you know, what it was like maybe for your parents? And you mentioned you had an older sibling, kind of like what um, what it was like growing up uh, when you did and with the accessibility that was available at the time. I don't know how much of the comment that my parents made to the doctors was just a knee-jerk reaction or stubbornness, but they made it and they stuck with it. Clearly, my parents were risk takers. I was born on the south side of Chicago, and for five years, we lived there. And when I was old enough to walk around and be aware, um, I went to the candy store with my brother and my cousins who lived next door and walked around the neighborhood some and did other kinds of things just like other kids did. I went to kindergarten when I was four in Chicago, because that's when you started. Braille existed. There were Braille writing devices that existed. A lot of the other stuff didn't. Um, I wasn't taught to use a white cane when I was going to kindergarten and so on. And in fact, the first time I picked up a white cane to use when I was 18, but I'll get back to that. But I did learn how to be aware of my surroundings. and I learned how to get to some places. Then we moved to California and I had to learn it all over again. And for the first four years of schooling, because kindergarten there started at five, and my school wouldn't let me skip kindergarten, even though I'd already had a year of it. So for the first four years, I didn't have a lot of access to material, no Braille, no teachers that knew anything about it. But I studied with my parents. My dad taught me math. I learned to do algebra in my head by the time I was six. My mom helped me with English and spelling and all those other kinds of things. 
And then between eight and nine, uh, third grade ended and the school district actually had more blind students and they hired a teacher, Mrs. Hirschberger, who were the uh, who was the person who started helping me get Braille text, helping me improve again with Braille. And I walked around the schools just like anyone else would. I didn't need to see, I could hear. Uh, and I learned the routes to go all around the school, to go to anywhere in the school. Uh, and I could walk anywhere in the school. I developed that skill. And I developed knowing where I was, partly by hearing, partly by just being aware of my surroundings. And using a dog or a cane, that's what you have to do. It doesn't matter which. I, I don't ever want my guide dog to know where I want to go or how to get there. I don't want the dog getting into the habit of doing something. I worked really hard at the World Trade Center to make sure that I didn't travel the same way every time. Because if I did that and we started walking and I couldn't go a particular way because there was an emergency, that happened. And the dog wanted to go that way because that's what the dog knew. We would lose valuable time arguing. So I had to work. And it was really tough eventually to be in a place like the World Trade Center, which is a still a building complex, and there are only a few ways to get from point A to point B, but I had to work to mix it up to keep the dog alert, which also helped me learn it. At the age of 18, like I said, I, I used a cane for the first time between high school and college. I went to a college preparatory program for blind students and uh, was in the University of California, Santa Cruz for six weeks. And there were mobility instructors there, and they thought they had a real live one who didn't know anything about mobility because I never used a cane. And so I, I bought a cane because I knew that was going to be the case, and we left my guide dog at home. We left my dog Squire at home. And I went up there, and within five minutes of starting to walk around the campus, I knew where things were. And I walked around the campus like anybody else who used a cane for years because I can teach anyone to use a cane in five minutes teaching people to be comfortable, confident, and aware of what they're doing and where they're at and how to get around with a cane takes months, which is true for sighted people too. You learn different techniques. And so the awareness that I had developed pre-guide dog that I continued to use with a guide dog and then used with a cane are really all the same thing. So we didn't have any of the fancy technologies we do today when I was growing up, didn't have cell phones, didn't have Google Maps or any GPS technologies. It was all memorization. Even when I went to work for Kurzweil and I was selling and traveled to places that I had never been to before, like once I relocated back to California and there was this guy who wanted to buy one of our data entry machines. You may have heard of him, Francis Ford Coppola, the movie producer. Um, I went to Zoetrope Studios, and then he moved up to Napa. And one day I had to be up there to deal with negotiating our lease with Francis. And I had no problem going up there, but I learned what I needed to do to get from San Francisco Airport or, uh, yeah, I think it was San Francisco Airport. It wasn't Oakland. Maybe it was Oakland. But I learned what I needed to do in advance to get to where his winery was then we negotiated, and then I had learned what I needed to do to get back. And I think there was going to be a, I don't know whether it was going to be a cab or a bus that would take me back to where I needed to go. But it was all memorization. It was all research. Those are the things that I needed to do. 
as frustrating as it could be because I didn't have things that I have today, I was able to do that. And when I mentioned earlier the um, National Federation of the Blind Job, literally on any day, I could be anywhere from California to New York dealing with reading machines and oftentimes being in strange places that I had never been to before until I learned the areas. But that's what I have to do is to learn that stuff. And I can, and any blind person can. And unfortunately, all too often, teachers in society don't teach us collectively those skills. Many people do learn them, but there are all too many people who were sheltered and who never learn that they're just as competent and confident or can be as confident and capable as anyone else. And that's where society's breakdown occurs for us. But over time, it will improve. We'll get better technologies. We'll continue to see that happen. I mentioned my podcast. When I was at UC Irvine, I had a radio show. I was not very good at editing at, during doing the show um, because back in those days, it was all on tape and you had to cut tape and splice it. And the neater job you did, the less likely people could hear that you spliced tape. And I wasn't really very good at it. I use a program now called Reaper that has actually accessibility tools that are added onto it. And I can edit a podcast as well as anyone can. I can edit the data and, and do all the things that, that need to be done. As I said, technology has advanced a lot. Our attitudes are still lagging way behind. And I hope that people will take seriously what I say here, people who are listening to this, and will recognize blindness isn't the problem. It's our attitudes. It's our misconceptions and our lack of education. Um, it was the problem for my wife as well, being in a wheelchair. We had a lot of challenges in dealing with access for her. When she was growing up, um, going to college, she had to fight really hard to get University of California Riverside to put in mechanisms to allow her to have access to rooms and, and buildings and so on. But they did. And even after the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed, there continued to be a lot of resistance. And hopefully over time, we're starting to see that diminish and people are being a lot more understanding. But still with blindness, there are just way too many gaps that we need to get addressed. Yes. And you mentioned earlier, obviously, about learning Braille and that, um, you know, all blind people should learn Braille. It seems like Braille is not as commonly being used. So is there anything to kind of like keep that momentum and make sure people who need it are getting that access? It is hard. Um, the literacy rate we estimate used to be 50%. Now, because of teachers and a lack of educating kids about Braille, it's 10%. If you have any eyesight, no matter how little, you are essentially forced to use your eyes to read books, even though you may start getting headaches 30 minutes or 45 minutes after starting to read. And you're reading like maybe with a closed circuit television screen, one word on the screen at a time. It has to be built up so large. We do such a disservice to kids, including low vision children, by not teaching them Braille. I have no problem with them using their eyesight, but the reality is tens of thousands of those people have said to me over the years, if our teachers had only let us learn and helped us learn Braille, we could read faster. We could read better. We wouldn't have all the headaches we do today. 
so the literacy rate is low. The National Federation of the Blind has started a program called Bell Braille Enrichment Through Literacy Learning. And there are other programs that are doing things with it, but it's still very low in terms of the percentage of people who learn it. I know people who are 80 and 90 who lose their eyesight. Are they going to really learn auto Braille? Probably not. But they could learn enough to be able to figure out or get help labeling some things um, and having a little bit better access than they would if they didn't have tactile information to use them to help control a microwave or whatever the case happens to be. So it's, it's a struggle. And it's an effort that is not growing nearly as fast as we would like it to, but all we can do is to continue to try to educate people and get people to understand Braille is the means of reading and writing that I use and that every blind person should be able to use. And people shouldn't discourage it. They should encourage it. And teachers especially for blind and low vision people should encourage Braille usage, especially for, for the younger kids. I, I was in a classroom one day um, discussing a proposal that um, a, a school had become a part of. And there was a totally blind child and there was a, a partially blind or what I'm calling and should call low vision. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. But there was a blind and a low vision child Sally was low vision, Johnny was blind, and the teacher said right in front of me, Sally gets to read print, Johnny has to read Braille. That's the kind of attitude we face. And the reason I mention low vision as opposed to other things, mostly today we hear people say blind or visually impaired. Two problems with that. Visually, don't think so. I look the same whether I'm blind or sighted. Visually has nothing to do with it. But the bigger problem is words matter. Impaired? Why do I need to be equated to somebody with eyesight? Uh, people who are deaf don't like at all hearing impaired for a very good reason. Hard of hearing is the preferred way, and we need to teach society that low vision is the same equivalent for people who happen to not be totally blind, but who by any standard don't at all have their full eyesight. And they should learn all the blindness techniques as well because it will enhance their lives. They get to use both blindness techniques and some eyesight sighted techniques as long as they have eyesight. And they should do that, but they need to learn it all. Otherwise, they won't be nearly as productive, nor will they be as confident as they can be. Yes, I think that makes a lot of sense and is really important for people to hear. And I, I'm happy, you know, you educating us there about the phrase low vision and that that would be the preferred way. And it makes a lot of sense exactly how you just explained it. I think hard of hearing is a term that people are familiar with or more familiar with. So low vision can be that same sort of thing. Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners today? I think um, I think we've covered a lot of stuff. I would say that um, because of the World Trade Center and all the things that I've done, we wrote a book in 2010. I and a colleague who I met, Susie Flory, wrote, and our agent, Chip McGregor, published or got Thomas Nelson Publishing to publish Thunderdog, the story of a blind man, his guide dog, and the triumph of trust at ground zero. 
It tells the story of the World Trade Center, but it's not a 9-11 book at all. It really tells my story, and it weaves into it events of September 11th. And Thunderdog is available wherever books are available, and people can certainly get it, and hopefully they will. I wrote another book that we self-published called Running with Roselle, which is kind of more my story as well as the story of Roselle growing up. And so we we talk about things that we did, things that we did together, but things that we both learned as individuals along the way. And um, it is also available through Amazon. We published it through uh, Kindle Direct Publishing. So it's available wherever uh, you can get Amazon books through Amazon and, and so on as well. So both of those are, are available. And I hope that people will absolutely um, get the books and that it will help educate them a little bit more about blindness because that's really what I intended to do. Um, I want people to understand that, again, blindness isn't really the problem. The fact is that we can do the same things as anyone else. We just need to really have the opportunity um, to prove that we can do the same things. And I don't mind somebody saying that, you know, we'll try you out like anybody else, but you're only going to be good if you prove that you're able to do the uh, the job like anyone else. And I think that's what's really important is to be able to get to that point. So in reality, um, you know, I think that, that if people read Thunderdog, I hope that that will educate them some. If they'd like to learn more about me, they can certainly find some things on Accessibility's website, www.accessibility.com, but they can also go to my website, www.michaelhingson, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-H-I-N-G-S-O-N.com, and they can learn about Unstoppable Mindset there, or, the, or else they can find it wherever podcasts are available. It's all over the place, and I hope people will listen. And also, if they want to be a guest, or Sarah, we'd love to have you as a guest. If you'd like to be a guest, we'd love to explore that as well. And um, and I think we can have a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed doing the podcasts, and I intend to continue to do it. Um, I love to learn, and every guest who I've had on has taught me a great deal, which is as good as it gets. Great. Well, I appreciate you sharing all of that, and I'll definitely make sure to leave some of those great links in the description. <laughs> Before we get to the random question, Mike does have one additional great story that he's going to share. So we're going to patch that in right here. So I'm using a device called a Braille Edge, where, where, which is a re, what's called a refreshable Braille display that puts the dots in a display at the bottom of the screen. And I want to read the last two paragraphs of a speech that was written and delivered by the original founder and first president of the National Federation of the Blind, Dr. Jacobus Tembrook. Dr. Tembrook went to UC Berkeley in the 30s or late 20s, and he wanted to um, study psychology, but then he wanted to go as an undergrad, but then he wanted to go into law. And the people at Berkeley said, you can't do law. Blind people can't do law. You can't do that. We won't let you. So he got a PhD in psychology but then he joined the faculty at Berkeley. And when he did, um, he worked in psychology and all that until one day he was asked to take over 
a department at Berkeley called the speech department. And uh, Dr. Tembrook took over this department. And one of the first announcements that he made to the entire UC faculty at Berkeley was, in the speech department, I'm really looking for people to join, and I hope you'll come and join me. But when you join this department, you are going to have to undertake a discipline different from the discipline of activity that you had prior to joining the speech department. So I love to say, what do you think Dr. Tembrook took on as a discipline outside of psychology? Constitutional law and became one of the most famous and well-known constitutional law scholars of the 40s, 50s, and mid into the mid-60s. He died of cancer in 1968. He founded the National Federation of the Blind, which is the largest civil rights organization of blind people in the world and certainly in the U.S. in 1940, along with a number of other people. In 1956, the convention of the Federation was in San Francisco, and he delivered a banquet speech entitled Within the Grace of God. And there's going to be a reference to the convention in this, but I want to read you the last two paragraphs of the speech because I think it summarizes in so many ways my belief about me and blindness uh, and the beliefs that so many other people have and the belief I think that we should all have. And those two paragraphs go like this. In the 16th century, John Bradford made a famous remark, which has ever since been held up to us as a model of Christian humility and correct charity, and which you saw reflected in the agency quotations I presented. Seeing a beggar in his rags creeping along a wall through a flash of lightning in a stormy night, Bradford said, but for the grace of God, there go I. Compassion was shown, pity was shown, charity was shown, humility was shown. There was even an acknowledgement that the relative positions of the two could and might have been switched. Yet, despite the compassion, despite the pity, despite the, the charity, despite the humility, how insufferably arrogant. There was still an unbridgeable gulf between Bradford and the beggar. They were not one, but two. Whatever might have been, Bradford thought himself Bradford and the beggar a beggar. One high, the other low. One wise, the other misguided. One strong, the other weak. One virtuous, the other depraved. We do not and cannot take the Bradford approach. It is not just that beggary is the badge of our past and is still all too often the present symbol of social attitudes toward us, although that is at least a part of it, but in the broader sense, we are that beggar and he is each of us. We are made in the same image and out of the same ingredients. We have the same weaknesses and strengths, the same feelings, emotions, and drives, and we are the products of the same social, economic, and other environmental forces. How much more consonant with the facts of social, excuse me, of individual and social life, how much more a part of a true humanity to say instead, there within the grace of God, do go I. And I can't think of a better way to express anything about blindness or anything about anyone who is different in our world and how we ought to deal with it. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Now, as I mentioned before we started recording, I do ask all of my guests a different random question at the end. So my question for you is, what is your favorite time of day? My favorite time of day has to probably really be, and there's a reason for it, um, it's, it's changed over the years, but I like just before I go to bed, because what I've learned to do is to step back and look at the day. What happened? How did it all go? If there was a problem and something didn't work right, what I've learned is not to beat myself up. I don't even call myself my own worst critic anymore because I think that's the wrong way to approach it. I'm my own best teacher because teachers can't really teach me things. They can give me the opportunity to learn but I have to teach myself. I have to take the step of learning. So at the end of the day, I get to sit down and think about what happened during the day and study on things and just take time for me. And that's as good as it gets, really just taking quality, quiet time to think about things that have happened, why they did something that went well. Why did it go well? Could I have even done better? What didn't go well? What can we do to fix that? You know, all of those kinds of things. We should really take more time for ourselves at the end of the day. And I think more people who do that would agree that it makes it for a better time of the day. Because I mentioned about not being afraid on September 11th. And I realized during the pandemic that although I talked about not being afraid, I've never taught people how to do that. And I'm working with someone and we're writing a new book called A Guide Dog's Guide to Being Brave. It'll be out probably next year, uh, probably not before next year, but it is going to talk about how you can learn to control fear and not let fear blind or paralyze you, but how you can deal with unexpected situations and not have them take over your psyche when they're occurring. All right, that brings this episode to a close. If you would like to connect with Mike, we've got some great links in the description. So of course he mentioned his website, he mentioned Accessibee's website, he mentioned his podcast. We'll also try to get some social media links in there as well. So definitely ways to go connect with him and see all of the great work that he is doing. And of course, if you'd like to connect with our podcast, our website is in the description as always. It brings you to all of our episodes, all good resources and social media for past guests. So feel free to go check that out or connect on our social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, there is a link to do that in the description as well. And if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, my email is there as always. So thank you so much, Mike, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Well, thanks very much. It was a joy to be here and I hope people enjoyed it. And you know, if they also want to have me come and speak, I'm ready to do that and they'll learn about it on the website. But thank you again, Sarah, for having us. I very much enjoyed it. Mm -hmm.